Uh, welcome everyone to the uh, August 22nd QPSC. Uh, just as a welcome to all and a reminder that our convention is to move directly to closed session. Closed session, uh, to recall for everyone, is 1157 protected and is used to discuss confidential matters related to the medical staff accreditation or risk management. If you're not directly related to one of these discussions, we ask you uh, to join us during uh, the open session, which should begin right around 3 o'clock um, uh, in about 30 minutes. Okay? So with that, uh, roll call. Trustee Banerjee. Here. Trustee Bouquet. Here. Trustee Hernandez. Here. And Trustee Jensen is not here. We have a quorum. Thank you. All right, everybody, welcome back. Uh, we are now going into open session on QPSC. This is the August 22nd meeting. We've already done roll call, and we've completed closed session. We'll move into item B, the consent agenda. May I entertain a motion to approve the consent agenda? So moved. A second. Now, all in favor of approving? Aye. All right. That, uh, there's only an item B1. And interestingly, there are no policies and procedures, so that made your packet reading a lot easier today. <laughs> so with that, we'll close out item B. Uh, we, are, we are now back on time. We will move to item C, um, uh, the, the chair's report. So um, just to refresh for everyone, last month I chose articles related to gun violence. Uh, if you may recall at the last QPSC, I related my experience being at a European medical conference and having the European view on, quote, the American gun problem. And it was a little bit humbling to hear their perspective. Since our last QPSC, we've seen Gilroy, we've seen El Paso, we've seen Dayton, and many other small mass shootings. Uh, remember, mass shootings uh, has a kind of a, an unofficial definition of uh, five or more people were shot. Uh, in, in that, and there have been a number of those in addition to uh, those three that I just listed. I think it would be easy enough for us to leave it alone after discussion last month, and I didn't want to let ourselves off the hook that easily. So um, I wanted to bring these articles back for us for discussion. I'd invited a lot of the trauma and ED physicians, and we do have, uh, of course, one of our steadfast trauma surgeons here. I don't see any of them in the audience, and Dr. Ballard, you made some comments last time. I, I, will, I know your, your post and pre-call right now, but uh, you still live this stuff. Um, I'll, I'll give you the mic to open up any comments on, on the articles included and the general discussion. Last time, I, I think I was a little, I I was a little global in my response to the articles. I will say that the articles both address a more umbrella and generic uh, um, philosophy around hospitals' roles in violence in, in intervention um, and gun violence, particularly. Interestingly, at 7 a.m., I'll be a member of a hospital-based violence intervention conference call mm. with the West Coast. And um, I'll share with you that, that part of our agenda is to talk about the granular aspects of how we actually manifest within acute care hospital settings these intervention programs. I'll also share with you that the chair of that committee is a woman named Rochelle Dicker, who was my senior fellow when I was a fellow at San Francisco General in the early 2000s. And um, she started the Wraparound Project, which is the um, probably nationally known violence intervention hospital-based program in the United States and is successful outcomes, which many other programs don't, as you probably see from the articles, 
don't have data that are nearly as um, compelling in terms of their success rates. I think one of the things that allowed Dr. Dicker to find um, the, the levels of decreased recidivism and um, improved outcomes in terms of quality of life for families and individuals who had been shot uh, primarily has been that hospital-based multidisciplinary team approach. And there are a, an incredible number of different models in the country. I think that probably the way in the next decade we're going to go is to really, really push a model very similar to the one that mimics the wraparound idea where you have a hospital-based, not an external-based, but a hospital-based violence intervention group that is there from the, from the first moment supporting family and members of, um, or, or, and, and victims of, of gun violence, but also looking beyond the disposition and saying, how do we get you a job? How do we get you education? How do we get you out of that neighborhood? I mean, I know that Dr. Dicker personally helped people find new apartments when she was a fellow to get out of the neighborhood they were in because that was part of the, that was what was identified as part of the problem. So I think across the country we're working on lots of different models. My bias is we're probably going to be something very similar and, and very global in its scope because this is not just a, an acute care hospital problem or a pre-hospital problem, it's a, you know, a continuity of life problem and it's both sociological, psychological, and physiological when it hits, you know, when it starts to get into that realm. So I know Dr. English also has seen probably more than I have, if that's possible. <laughs> and I'd be interested to know if he has any thoughts on, on violence intervention and kind of the, the degree of... He's here to talk epic with us. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll, I'll give him the nod, but he is a, a practicing physician in this organization, so he has opinions. I'll give right. him a, a breath if he wants to think about it. What impressed me about about this is it's rare that you get so many different uh, groups together to, to, come, to find consensus. Um, the American College of Physicians, the American Academy of Family Physicians, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American College of Surgeons, the American Medical Association, and the American Psychiatric Association and the American Public Health Association all signed off on this, on this document, which is really interesting. In my cursory review, I'm not aware of any healthcare organizations which have done similarly. And it's a cursory review. Uh, I'm, I'm some, there, there's probably someone better educated on, the, on me on this subject. But for me, it inspired me to ask the question, what can we do as a healthcare organization? Uh, and and uh, obviously, uh, resources are one thing that we can provide, but, but, but statements of support mean something, in my opinion. And, and uh, resolutions mean something, in our opinion. They're statements on paper, in public, of what we believe. I just wonder about these kind of opportunities. And again, I'm certainly not an expert on gun violence, but these are the things that, 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 that come to my mind when, when, when uh, I'm watching the news just like everybody else, uh, but I happen to work at a healthcare organization. Um, Dr. J, comments, uh, or Dr. Ballard, or Dr. English? Dr. English, I knew it. I will say that there is a popular mythology that this all traces to mental illness. Yes. But violence is a lot more deeply rooted in people and our particular part of society than that. 
And I think guns are a problem. And I also think that violence itself needs to be treated like a disease and studied like a disease. Uh, which was interesting in the article, uh, something I actually didn't know about, which, which informed me, the gag order on physicians about talking about guns in, in a healthcare environment. We're not allowed to talk about that in, in the friggin' appointment. We're not allowed. And it's funny because I'm going through my epic training and there's six little bullets on social determinants of health. Not one of them relate to guns. Other, other kinds of violence, but it, I, I find this curious. And, and I, I wonder if this is an opportunity for us, for our organization, to be on the vanguard uh, of, of, of such considerations. Dr. J? Uh, in New York City, we had uh, a big program. Uh, we used to call it Kavi Kings Against Violence. And it is part of the, uh, of the trauma prevention program where uh, it intervenes, you know, even at the uh, public schools level when uh, when young kids are adolescent to just uh, have programs to divert them away from from uh, from uh, arms we have some programs here in terms of uh, violence pre prevention but also they intervene with city with city hall and the mayor's office in terms of policy making uh, so we had like a number of physicians who were involved uh, in in the system and outside outside the system uh, just like uh, ta targeting what can we learn from every penetrating injury and what can we do to intervene to, to make to make a change to prevent that it is actually part of the ACS certification to have a trauma prevention program for every single trauma including the arm but I don't know how much we have worked at the, at the level like of the American Medical Association or other associations. Yeah. Dr. Lark. Yeah, I, I will say part of the conversations I've had with our, with our nationally based violence intervention committees is that um, in the next rendition of the ACS accreditation um, guidelines, the hospital-based violence intervention programs are going to be strongly suggested and, and we anticipate that the following version of our accreditation um, it, guidelines are going to mandate it. So we're probably two, two renditions away from it being absolutely mandated for us to maintain a level of anything status with the ACS. Okay. So. Uh, I, I didn't previously invite Dr. Harrison Alter uh, to come here, who, who is, uh, who, uh, th this has been a long passion for him. Unfortunately, he wasn't able to make it. I guess what, I, what I'd say to Dr. Alter, Dr. Ballard, I also invited Dr. Victorino and some of the other trauma surgeons is, to, to build your ask of this organization uh, uh, and, and then for us to ask ourselves, are we brave enough to do something about it, uh, is sort of what I'd say as we come to a close on this session. Trustee Hernandez. Um, so my aunt was shot walking home from church. This was in Los Angeles a few years ago. Um, she's since passed. Yeah. My, my aunt was shot when she was walking home from church. Um, and this was in Los Angeles years ago. Um, and, and I want us to also keep in mind what the trauma is of a victim. Um, we think about a lot of the prevention work, and that is absolutely important. But there is enormous trauma for the families who survive. Um, she was very fortunate. Um, she was not incapacitated by this gunshot wound, but I don't think she was ever the same. And um, I can see why 
the anger <coughs> can create a cycle of retaliation and further violence. But I also think we need to understand, you know, this is in a community. She, she stayed in East LA um, for all of her life and it was a rough neighborhood where um, I started out. <laughs> and I just know that we cannot forget what it does to the families who, for you know, we were not part of that gang environment. She was not in that at all, but she was simply walking home and something happened. So she was in the crossfires. So I would like us to always think about, yes, we need to be involved in the preventive side, but what are we doing for the families who are victim to it? You know, can it, it, it can create its own cycle of violence when people feel they need to retaliate or do things to counter that. So. The, the amount of PTSD we see in the trauma clinic is astronomical I, I for that very yeah. reason. Yeah. Dr. Bellard, as we come to, uh, sorry, you have more. And, and we have minimal options as to how we can supply services for them, which is really stressful for us as providers because we want to help, and yet there's minimal things we can do. Yeah. Dr. Bellard, as our chief of staff and a trauma surgeon, I, I, I'll give you the charge of coming back to this committee in the, in the, in the setting of your chief of staff report with an ask. If, if one can be developed in a multidisciplinary fashion amongst leaders in our organization. Okay. Okay. With that, we will close out item C, and we will go into item D, the medical staff reports. Um, as I say, dealer's choice. Um, Dr. Marzouk, why don't you go first? You weren't, you weren't able to be with us last time. Uh, the report is yours. Uh, uh, Speak into the so, mic, please. <laughs> uh, essentially, uh, we did not meet in August, uh, so uh, as a, except for approval of uh, the credentials and privileges uh, for the staff. Uh, it's been a quiet time. Good or bad? <laughs> Good. <laughs> uh, and uh, the only issue are, issues are, again, uh, uh, the staff are training okay. is, in, is in process right okay. now. And, uh, it's nice. Uh, matter of fact, I attended uh, mine last night at uh, Alameda. And, uh, very uh, helpful, and uh, it, it's on site. I will close everyone's uh, presentation with the same question. Can you please rank list your top concerns that you have? Well, I think uh, I think uh, uh, again. Probably the Sapphire implementation is going to be, particularly as uh, going live is next month, uh, probably, I think it's prior to this board meeting, if I recall. Yes, it's yeah, about it's a few prior, days before. Prior we go on board. September, Saturday, September 28th. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, so that's the, that's the, uh, the major, and again, uh, you know, minor, I mean, issues of transfer are going to be, I'm sure, markedly improved with the transition to Sapphire. Okay. And Epic. So just number one is Sapphire implementation, no other? Uh, and, and let's say the thing, the transfer process transfer. will, will okay. be, we'll put that secondary right now. Okay. With regard to the Sapphire implementation, do you feel 
that uh, you've been resourced enough to be successful at GoLive? Uh, yes, uh, hopefully. Okay. Um, a qualified yes. Got it. No, I mean, <laughs> uh, you never know until you actually you never know. go online. I mean, go live. Got it. That's when everything comes together. Thank you. Trustees, any questions of Dr. Marzouk on the Alameda Hospital report? Thank you for your report, Dr. Marzouk. Dr. Ingenue, coming down, coming down next. Please uh, give us give us some reports from San Leandro Hospital, please. So we actually don't have an MEC anymore, but we do have our physician leadership committee, and that met for the first time about a week ago, I suppose. Um, and uh, I think it was a fruitful meeting. Uh, we're still working out some of the, the nuances of you know, what the role of that committee will be, what things to review. But it, it really, I think, I'm, I'm sorry, it really will have, um, I think, some of the same functions that MEC on um, um, uh, quality and, and processes at, at San Leandro Hospital, um, with more engagement from, from the other physicians that are more frequently at Highland, I think. Uh, I, I still think we're working through the representatives that will be going to the, the MEC at Highland, that meeting. You know, I still sense there's going to be a challenge to get participation because mm -hmm. of when it is, and I've said this for a year mm -hmm. or however long I've been here. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we'll see you know, how that works. Um, the, uh, because it, it, it's at a time that most people are working, right in the middle of the morning mm -hmm. on a Wednesday. So we'll see. I think the, um, uh, there are some nuances that we're working out, which we discussed at MEC at Highland here just yesterday that I think will be fine. I don't think there's going to be a problem with that in terms of the, <coughs> the structure and, and who will be selected. There's an intent that I think just needs to be articulated mm -hmm. to have a, an equal um, uh, spread of the different specialties. Mm -hmm. It's not expressly articulated in, in any of the documents, but I think it should be the intent to have physicians from all different disciplines come um, other than that, I don't uh, see any major issues. I know your next question is going to be yep. my concerns. And, you know, and I'll remind you what you said last time. Last time you said, number one, nurse staffing. Number two, EPIC slash Sapphire. Number three, OR volume. That was your last report. Right. So uh, you know, I don't think they're much different. I think you could almost combine the first two because I am still extremely concerned, I've said this for multiple months, about staffing at the time of the transition for EPIC, having gone through that before, and I just want to be certain that there's going to be adequate staff to help, not just the ancillary staff, but the nurses that are actually working are not going to be able to do as much patient care, and if you, if you want to keep the same level of service, because they're going to be bogged down with the EPIC transition, you're going to have to, in my humble opinion, overstaff for a period of time so you can get the same quality and the same patient satisfaction if you're driving for that. Having seen, as I discussed last time, um, everyone's focus on documenting everything appropriately in EPIC. Um, so that's a big concern I have. And it's a concern that nurses have come to me with you know, have you done this before? Ones that haven't done a transition, um, and they're worried about it, and I think justifiably so. So that kind of goes with staffing and nursing together. Can, um, can you make commentary on how that concern has been navigated, or? I have no idea. Lewis, is there how, um, um, I know, Mark, we were speaking about it just last night, uh, but given that 
Sam Leandro specifically where they are going from paper to EHR, so they haven't even had a intermediate EHR thing. How is that staffing going to be worked out during that time? So for all the facilities, there is a grid that's been created. So uh, everyone has super users, uh, and there, there are a number of super users, and then there's another layer with the house supervisors that are super users. All the assistant managers and managers are also super users. And so there will be the regular staff on for the day to care for the patients like we normally would have. And then there are all these additional layers baked in as well. So we recognize that Alameda and San Leandro are paper going to an electronic health record, which is a bigger jump than Highland, for example. Mm -hmm. So that has been taken into account. Um, so there's, there's a grid that Mark and his team have provided to say who's on when, uh, who's supporting when, and then how do we adjust per ratios, you know, which units need uh, extra assistance based on patients, et cetera. So you're right, Dr. Engineer, the desire is not to lower the patient census or decrease services, um, but to make sure that we cover it appropriately. So uh, this has been an ongoing discussion with uh, nursing, with Mark and his team, with certainly Teresa has been deep, deep in the weeds with Lori and Ronica, um, and we are absolutely confident that we are covered. The other thing that's being done is we are starting to round on the units to talk to staff about what are your concerns, what are your questions, um, and then to put some rah-rah behind, let's get excited, this isn't something that's being done to you, it's being done for you, um, let's, you know, let's embrace this and we know it'll be bumpy, uh, but it'll be fantastic when it's done. And so there's videos that have been created, there's one-to-one -one conversations with staff, uh, there's a lot of work that's being done as we get closer and closer. So uh, the confidence, if you had asked us two weeks ago, we might have had a, a different story, but as people have now gone through the training, um, they're starting to have a, a, a bigger uh, level of understanding and a higher comfort level that this isn't going to be as bad as we thought it would be. So I think, you know, just talk to people before they've done their uh, six hours of, of, of training mm -hmm. um, is a whole different story afterwards. Mm -hmm. So it's like, oh, okay, we get this, we know we're supported, we know how to, to navigate through. So does that help answer that? Yeah, yeah that thank you. And to Dr. Ingenio, I hope that that is, you know, helping a little bit to assuage some of the worries that you have. Like I, you said, I you won't so. know until. We won't know until it's happening. I think that that's great. I maintain that even if a super user is behind you helping you do the documentation, it's going to take you longer to take care of that patient, right? So, I mean, as much help as you have of people helping you do that, uh, you know, I still have those same concerns and, you know, having been there at a transition like this before. So, um, I hope that this is not going to be an issue, but it's a concern that you have to concern. So. I think that there's an opportunity, as with everything, is, is is to help market the message of confidence that we're, we're that we're confident that we that we've planned for this. You know, planning and execution are always different, and outcomes are always different. But I think uh, marketing that planning <coughs> has occurred is, I think, can assuage some some fears, and I think that would be very very helpful. So, uh, I think an option from the med staff side, from the nursing staff, and from the administrative and from the IT side. Could all call, call out that because what I what I got from you from your presentation was that that people are a little bit afraid. Mm -hmm. is, is that accurate? Like you said? Uh, they're concerned. I don't know about afraid. They're okay. concerned about efficiencies. That's okay. that's what I get. You know, okay. at, during that transitional period, which is expected, you know, yeah. to be less efficient for a while. Okay. That's um, so. a dip for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's realistic. Realistic concerns, mm -hmm. I think. 
So um, any other questions for Dr. Ingenio? So Dr. Ingenio, to close out your rank list, it's nurse staffing slash Sapphire launch, and then number next is OR volume. Any commentary on the OR volume? Um, no, I mean, I, I would encourage the administrators to engage the community physicians again. I'd encourage us to get a Blue Cross contract. When I had to get another patient, I had to do it at a different facility for that reason recently. Um, so um, those are concerns, and it's it's less of a concern with, with my practice because in our group, because most of our patients are Medicare, so it's a non-issue. But for like orthopedics, I think that's what's eroded a lot of the orthopedics there, which is a big, you know, that's a potential big benefit to the system in that facility when you lose all those patients. And especially now that the um, construction is complete and you're kind of looking to uh, start activating the beds as well as right. the OR the in the coming great. months. The facade's been redone and, and uh, you know, I think, I haven't been upstairs, but everything looks like it's, it's almost completely yeah. yeah. I, I think those are good comments you make. Probably more apropos to a strategic financial discussion within the Finance Committee, but we're always happy to entertain mm -hmm. the, the thoughts and the concerns. Dr. Ingenio, thank you for your report. Sure. Dr. Ballard. Hello again. Hi again. So uh, we had a, an abbreviated MedExec this past week, and it was basically closed session. Um, the, the one thing I do want to share from that closed session is that it was brought to our attention uh, a specific case, but it echoes a much larger need in that there was a there was or is a transgendered patient who chooses to identify by the pronouns she and her, who on multiple occasions, um, the care team taking care of her members certain members of the care team taking care of her refused to do that one thing and and would call her him, call her he, uh, with an earshot and to the other members of the care team and, and adamantly refused to use the appropriate pronouns for this individual. I say that as someone who moved to the East Bay or moved to the Bay Area to leave a red state because I'm a lesbian and I find this really, really unacceptable. And, you know, I have seen the struggles in the gay community for my entire life. And I was really hoping that by moving across the country and being many thousands of miles away from my family of origin, that it would be a little bit better. And I have to say, the last two days have been really discouraging to know that we are not any further along in our model here in this institution than that. And it wasn't just one provider. The report came from a resident um, to her attendings. The attendings have... Um, echoed this to my awareness and to the awareness of the people in the closed session of MedExec. And, and I'm, I know that we have talked many, many times about the need for a diversity program and a diversity officer or people or team or whatever, but time is now. And, and I, I'm not sure that I can stomach seeing this happen to our patients ever again. It, this is this is a no, what's it called, a sentinel something. Never happened. Never. Never. Okay, so that for me is the biggest thing. So I'm bumping diversity up to the number one on my list. Got it. 
we, we should, I think, uh, I, I'm hearing about this the first time, uh, Dr. Bular. I'm hearing this first time. I mean, we, we should really, you know, after we go live on EPIC, I mean, we should treat this event as such, but we should go for the, you know, LGTB designation. And it is a project that we should really see how we can how we can actualize this. It it is possible, and other health system have done it. We should we should do it. I think the question that also was discussed in closed session, and I think the question that came along with that is, does that designation guarantee ongoing education and audit of practices? Uh, the, the the way uh, again previous life done it is uh, it it guarantees yes education and it is like uh, yearly also uh, education and certification for every single person touching patients interacting in the system uh, it just needs you know it needs to be actualized and it needs uh, you, you really need to ensure that everybody has taken the training and has taken you know the 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 certified training, like training on EPIC, yeah. you have to learn these things. I mean, it's a never cultural, cultural never intelligence, we call it right now, you know, but, but it, is, it is formalized in this way. Yeah. Trustee Hernandez. What was the consequence to the staff? That so, unfortunately, my hearing of this was very far removed mm -hmm. from any of the operational parts of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I'm not sure anything, um, I don't, see anyone here who was closer involved unless you know Dr. Baden Lee. Dr. Baden, it was your department. Are you aware of any repercussions that happened? I'm not aware of any. Rach, Mike, if you don't mind. I'm Dr. Baden, Mike, please. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not aware of any repercussions, but I know that this has been not just an issue on the inpatient, but an issue on the outpatient setting. There, this is a, a pattern of behavior, unfortunately, in our hospital. Did, I hope did, there are consequences. Did, I mean, yeah, if there's a pattern. So, so, um, unbelievable. I, I'd like to say that um, this is part of cultural competency. Yes. It has to be part of the training that we uh, follow in order to meet our class standards. Um, and there has to be a consequence to that kind of behavior because I think we can talk about training, I think we can talk about protocols, but until we're serious about making sure people understand that that kind of behavior is unacceptable, it, it continues. And so um, my hope is that the steering committee that I believe uh, I'm going to be helping with some of the diversity and inclusion work going forward, that we can look at something like this and say, what can we learn and what are the right ways to address this? Um, because I just, I, I'm just going to say, EPIC will allow us to look at some really interesting data coming forward. And I've spoken with Dr. Hussein about some of these measures that right now we get kind of in lump sum. When we start looking at how different patients perceive their experience here, by ethnicity, by SOGI data, any number of different slices of that, we're going to find out that there's a very different experience that people have when they come to our community. And this is an example of it. And we need to be prepared to train and to hold people accountable. Dr. Hussein, would this kind of event, and then you're going to have to uh, excuse my, my ignorance on this issue, would this trigger the qual a quality investigation? 
would this be appropriate and such, or, or, or Janet, if you have comments, you so looked up. I, I, I think we're, uh, when we, was it physician-driven, nurse-driven? I, I don't have any. I, don't know. I just, I got an email from one of the medicine docs that said my resident sent me this, and it was nurses. It was maybe was it other other ancillary staff? It's primarily a nursing issue. Okay. So, so has there been there uh, a formal trigger has not been pulled? Is, uh, there, is that accurate? I you mean like a Midas report? Uh, yes. I believe a Midas report was submitted. And Teresa's saying in the back that HR has been involved. Got it. Okay. Yeah. No, our nursing leadership jumped into action okay. immediately around this case, and I appreciate. Thank you, Teresa. Um, I just, I think, I think the ask from, and this is not a new ask from our residents or Department of Medicine, is that we as an institution take this very seriously. Um, our human rights certification is one step among many in a process where we make this a priority in terms of um, closing the knowledge gap that may exist for some of our providers around um, this competency and then, and then really measuring it. Um, because I think it really is, um, we have an obligation to our patients to do so. Absolutely. An obligation to ourselves. This does not define who who this organization should be. Dr. Ballard said, uh, I, I'm not usually in the position of correcting Dr. Ballard. She said the time is today. The time was yesterday. And, yep. and, and so I, I, I And agree I do think it's primarily, it comes from a place of lack of knowledge. And, uh, and I think that's how we should address it as an institution, is starting there with addressing that piece and that gap. Mm -hmm. um, and then giving people an opportunity to live up to the high standard that we need to hold ourselves accountable to. Dr. Blard, any further comment? Trustees, staff, thank you for that important uh, discussion. Important difficult discussion. With that, we will uh, close out. Um, uh, I'm sorry, no, same. Uh, uh, number one, uh, your top concern is uh, diversity. What are your other top concerns, Dr. Blard? Trust and Sapphire. Number one, diversity. Number two, trust. Number three, Sapphire. Got it. Thank you for your report. With that, we will close out item D, and we will go into item E, the Behavioral Health SBU report. A few opening comments on this. This is Dr. Karen Tribble's last report to us. Um, I want us all to give appreciation for her pro professionalism and her contr contributions to AHS. Um, we wish Dr. Triple the best on her next journey, and we actually look forward to the next iteration of our relationship with Dr. Triple as she moves to the county. Uh, you, you've been uh, you, you, you've been a champion for process and trying to make us better, and you are appreciated. So with that, um, uh, as we open up the report, uh, we should uh, always presume that the board has read uh, the packet. Uh, we strive for 25% presentation, 75% dialogue. The time attention uh, given to this was about 20 minutes. Hopefully that will be okay, Dr. Triple. And uh, we'll, we'll, I'll, we'll, uh, I'll ask for, for parting comments from you as, as you close this report. Thank you. So, um, yes, I'm just going to just stop there. Thank you. Uh, for the <laughs> I shake that. Um, I, I, I want to say um, uh, one of the things we wanted to highlight, and I do have Dr. Siddhartha, so if you wouldn't mind making your way over, if that's okay, um, to up. our physician mm -hmm. leader, senior most in behavioral health, which I highly regard. Um, one of the things that we looked at in terms of making sure we formulate a uh, an important 
document that really summarized some of the performance improvement efforts is really comprehensively a lot of the work that's been occurring across behavioral health. Uh, so I'll just basically briefly start out with our dashboard. I know it's really important, but it also speaks a little bit to some of the metrics that we've been working on. And more importantly, I think that would be helpful to talk through some of the actual performance improvement uh, changes and structural and procedural and training uh, just massively across behavioral health. Uh, so in terms of this, I'll start out initially in the dashboard. I'm sure you've, you've had the opportunity to look at it. Page um, 40 for those who are following in the packet. Uh, to start off, the items that met target, which is easy to say, is the inpatient average length of stay that, that met target, as well as our restraint and seclusion. And I want to highlight that because I want to speak to the relationship in terms of the work we've been doing. So if you can keep that in mind. The items that didn't meet target, which I'll briefly talk about, but again relates, is our PEAs, PES length of stay, the median inpatient um, length of stay, which is very closely connected to the inpatient in general, as well as the uh, psychiatric inpatient to inpatient rehospitalization, 14-day readmit, essentially. Um, why I like to speak to that is because as, as many months as I've been presenting, I've been talking about the acuity, and I think our acute side partners have seen it as well, behavioral health. And I'm super pleased that we've moved from an organic discussion and as a central discussion of whether there is an acute uh, or a uh, rise in acuity for our behavioral health patients. It just, it, it just is. Our presentations are occurring across our all domains, whether it's ambulatory, whether it's our EDs, uh, the presentation and request for consultation on the inpatient unit, as well, obviously, a PES. John George is the only um, uh, place that many individuals can go to for this level of care. And as I've mentioned before, uh, but again, I think it'll frame a little context, um, John George is not only utilized by AHS, it is the county's only system or safety net provider of psychiatric treatment for everyone. And so the folks come into John George by virtue of um, voluntary, walk-in, family members, community members, community organizations bring them in, law enforcement, as well as ambulance and other transports, emergency transports. So those are the three primary areas. Um, now, although our behavioral health has been in, involved in a lot of strategic uh, changes, and I certainly want to give kudos and recognition to the leaders both on the outpatient integrated behavioral health and uh, substance abuse uh, in terms of really trying to increase access across the board and reinstituting a lot of different programs. Today, I'd like to spend a lot more time with uh, Jen George, not, in, not just because of the nature of uh, the metrics in True North, but I, get, I think it's a Herculean amount of effort that has been uh, engaged for many, many, many months. Um, why I highlighted again that is, again, PES length of stay, the context I provided is just that. What we're seeing, um, initially PES was developed as a CSU, for the, I won't spend a lot of time defining it, but it was never meant to basically treat people at, a, at an emergency-based uh, um, acute level. It was never designed that way. It was a crisis stabilization. That was an outpatient setting in, in order to help basically a drop-in center for people experiencing crisis. So I've mentioned this before in Alameda County. It's the number one, uh, it's a metric that we can be proud of or we can acknowledge that we have the most, the highest 5150 rate in the state of California. And we um, say that one more time. The mm -hmm. highest 5150 rate in the state of California. Um, and again, the, the context that I'd like to provide is, so of course, John George in Alameda County, being the only safety net hospital, is seeing that exponentially. Um, to the tune that you are not only seeing individuals that are coming in needing services, and I, I think many who predate me when I was at the county before, 
it was an issue where prior to uh, 2017, there was no triage physician. So in essence, there wasn't a physician at the door really evaluating acuity to make sure those that really were seeking services at John George needed to be there. So that, that occurred. So why I say that is now folks that are coming into John George actually need to be there, meaning that they are actually more acute. So that initial screening that occurred a few years ago is in place and has worked. On the other side, uh, the county has provided a lot of different types of programs in the community to basically um, uh, remove a psychiatric hold if the person doesn't need to be transported. And so they've created programs with EMS, ambulance, clinicians, and, and ride along in the community, even with law enforcement. They actually have social workers riding around with them in the community. So when those individuals say that the person in the community doesn't need to be there, then that's one less person clearly that seeks treatment at John George. However, if they affirm that the person needs to be on a 5150, there is another layer of screening so you know the individual is even more acute than previously before. Mm -hmm. Because again, they don't see the traffic of individuals coming in uh, for as much now for less acute services. So that's the backdrop. So again, when you look at, and then I guess this is a integrated parting word, when you look at the um, median inpatient length of stay, what we're looking at is all the length of stay, again, was met metric. What we're seeing is that the physician and the nursing and the social worker team are having a little more challenge, obviously, with resources, discharge planning. So it literally means instead of five days, the median right in the middle was six days. So although that's still uh, fantastic, and I, again, want to really uh, emphasize the tremendous amount of work that's been done, there is still a, a challenge at John George that the system, AHS alone, really can't... Uh, solely address. So no matter how much uh, metrics are moved and workflows are changed, the end result still is once that individual is stabilized, where do they go? That obviously affects the length of stay. So, uh, excuse me, the inpatient to inpatient re 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 um, uh, readmission rate. So right now it is, our goal is 90%. It's 88. 14%, it's still not enough. We'd like to have a 99%, 90%. But again, when you look at those, uh, just data alone, that's still very striking. And I would say for this population is actually um, very good for a safety net hospital um, with a finite number of resources in terms of the commit, uh, community. Uh, so just with that context, uh, it, it, you know, for those that have looked at the, the, the report, which is why I have uh, Dr. Siddhartha here, the three main areas that John George has been tackling in the last two years, particularly in the last year, fall on protocol standardization, communi communication and escalation, and medical acuity within the psychiatric facility. Um, I'll start with the latter because it's uh, so complex. Um, as I mentioned before, and you've, you've heard in some of the QPSC reports, individuals that are coming into John George are much more medically fragile than, had, than they have seen in previous um, um, iterations of, of uh, data finding. Uh, what that means, so again, historically, most people don't, aren't aware, is that PES used to exist at Highland. And when it was in Highland, it, before in 1991, prior to 1992, there was a med surge unit, there was all the accoutrement of having an ED integrated with the PES. When it moved uh, to the campus where it is now, was primarily just for inpatient. And because of these numbers, it turned into an outpatient, essentially, crisis center. So in essence, the county has tried to catch up with the trends, but nevertheless, we're at a, a critical uh, point. Um, why I mentioned the medical acuity is if you did see, and I don't know if it can be 
projected, but there is uh, uh, now a standardized uh, tool, and quite frankly, it is a protocol for our physician and nursing leaders to guide them in terms of admission. Uh, what we have found over time is it's been organic, meaning depending on the hospital sending the patient or depending on the relationship and the provider, but we've had to standardize at John George very black and white, subject only to doc-to-doc -doc review, whether a person is appropriate for admission. And it seems very uh, standard in terms of the behavioral health field, but literally things like if the individual requires IV drips, although it's a hospital, although it's connected to Highland, that individual unfortunately can't be managed safely in the environment because obviously you can use IV as a ligature. And in and of itself, it's a dangerous situation. So even if our staff are trained to manage those things, there's certain things that can occur. Uh, some of the work that we've been uh, working on, again, is around the nurse-to-nurse -nurse handoff reports. What we have found is, uh, historically, as I mentioned, John George has been here, um, will probably be here you know, when, when I retire, theoretically. Um, but nurses were mostly providing a psychiatric handoff report, which is very different than an acute care environment. In that, the, as you can see in the uh, attachment, we've had to standardize very typical medical language or medical issues that most psychiatric nurses don't routinely have to continually communicate. But rising acuity has forced that. So you'll see some of those efforts. Um, as well as literally um, retraining some of our community partners, particularly our EDs, not just our own, but literally uh, a few and far between across the county. And we literally have, I think, some meetings set up uh, next week with uh, a variety of organizations to understand that although Alameda Health System, which is an acute uh, system, <coughs> and John George is a part of that system, that John George is not an acute medical hospital. Because again, we, there are lots of uh, uh, literally case presentations and events that occur, unfortunately, where there's repeated uh, send out and return um, in terms of uh, just a mismatch in terms of what the person needs. So th uh, there's a lot of that work. Um, I'll just hit broad strokes, and then I think if there are any specific questions, I think Dr. Siddhartha um, is the expert. Um, the other uh, areas, as I mentioned, communication and escalation. I think uh, Darshan did a great job of talking about the basics um, in terms of uh, the need. As one can imagine, in behavioral health, immediately communicating something is a little, maybe a little more complicated. For example, um, whether it's an emergency, which we've now standardized protocols so that literally, if you see a decline, even if you think it's not a decline, you know whom, with whom you should call and speak with. Um, we've had to standardize that. As I mentioned before, it's much more complicated. Because the patients are now more acute, they have also gone basically to, uh, through the legal process, to become conserved at a much higher rate. In Alameda County, the conservator does not typically uh, discharge patients to anywhere except a locked board and care facility. Not every county does that, and not every county's uh, conservator's office is separate from behavioral health, but ours just has to, happens to be. Why I mention that is because uh, we may have standardized protocols, and when the conservator's office is notified, i.e. the conservator's office is not open from after, after hours. It's not like a behavioral health type of conservator uh, relationship. So even getting um, conservator involvement and connection has been one of the standardized protocols that we've been using. 
And, and I think the, the other piece is uh, retraining. We're still on a lot of efforts to not only re retrain, but I think recognizing that the, sca the staff actually are experts in their field and have been for many years, uh, accumulated about 1,000 years, probably even more than that, lives of experience. However, based on the patient population, based on the fact that the building was constructed in 1992, and yet it's a very different set of uh, uh, patients that are there, uh, there's a lot of effort in terms of changing the dynamics um, at admission, whether it is a physician uh, required uh, aff affirmation that the person may be admitted, or whether it is literally a standardized uh, protocol to send the patient back out. So again, there's just a lot of hardwiring, um, quite frankly, to preemptively prepare for and in response to some of the events. And so that is a, that is. Earlier, you asked for my, my question, and that's why my pause, mm -hmm. because what we are trying not to do is just uh, focus on one or two key issues and areas related to some risk events. It's really a massive, comprehensive uh, change, and that can be uh, complex for many staff to catch up with that, but we are literally in real time reevaluating everything as we go forward. So it's, it's pretty significant in terms of what's, what's going on. Do you have any specific questions? Trustee Fernandez. I, I have a question that's just helped me understand something about the challenge of the acuity of the patients that we're getting, you know, at the front door. Is it the case that other county entities or other agencies are bringing us patients? I'm going to use an example. Somebody who's having a psychotic episode, but at the same time, they're having a stroke. I mean, that should not come to John George. And and are they making that kind of assumption that they can bring them to you? We had a great event where one of our psychiatrists uh, intervened, so I don't know if you So, uh, actually, if you think about it... Dr. Stoffer, Mike. The reality of the situation is that when their person is an acute stroke, they are not reaching us. That's not happening. Uh, what is more happening is of the nature that the person, let's say, has acute renal failure, right? And they also are psychotic. And when they went to the went to the ED, right, and then they have, uh, they were stabilized, right? Now this person needs to go somewhere. Mm -hmm. Psychiatric psychiatric condition is not stabilized. He's not a candidate for staying in the hospital. So that person now reaches John George, right? Somebody has to take care of them, right? And so that's the kind of patient that we struggle with to maintain the level of care that this person needs for the next, let's say, five days, 10 days. Uh, and also be up to speed or be have the level of alertness or the competence to recognize changes when they are happening. That's what we struggle with more, and the the reason for that are people getting more sick. I think it has got to do with uh, over the next year. Once we have Epic, I think we'll have better data about trying to really see uh, how the patient mix is changing. Now, if you look at the observed over expected, you would see that the R, you know, uh, is increasing. Uh, but so, so is expected. So that points towards something. I think the population is definitely aging, right? Uh, we know that uh, we there are 
uh, you know, so those are the two big things. And the what I know is that the homeless population in the in our county has increased by 40 or 50 percent over the last year or two. Not to say that that necessarily equates to homelessness, but what uh, to poor health, but it does equate with lack of resources. So the need for that patient to be really inpatient somewhere, right? So I think that's what we are dealing with in a kind of a, as a, a scope of the problem. And the other piece that I'll mention is uh, we're, and I've mentioned it before in other QPSC presentations, uh, a striking increase in individuals with developmental challenges, those with autism, uh, mental retardation, and that really is a correlation. That's why I mentioned the conservator, because you, you literally cannot discharge those patients safely in an environment that you would normally try to discharge to others. So it is a juxtaposition between those folks no longer meet psychiatric acuity standards for being there, but literally John George has now become uh, their home, and it's really not that kind of environment um, to safely provide quality entertainment, care, and support for a person that really just needs a next level of care. And so, um, but I did want to speak, I don't want to, sure, we, we have recently, I just want to call out, uh, one of our physicians did see that an individual was displaying some behavioral issues and uh, came, and they actually found to be experiencing a stroke. So and that was a couple of weeks ago. Yes. So we're seeing all kinds. Um, obviously, the more able you're able to ambulate and or articulate, the less likely uh, it will be assumed that you have a behavioral health issue. But nevertheless, just the complexities of themselves and we're also finding that aging is a huge component. Many of the psychotropic medications that you get, uh, i.e., can cause diabetic diabetes and other long-lasting, just life course syndromes. Mm. And so those individuals will never be, um, unless you change and stop their medication protocols, then their uh, medical conditions are, are uh, destabilized. So this, it, the complexities of them are also very, um, nuanced, a little different than uh, the community. And one aspect of that, again, is literally, and I've mentioned it before, is for some patients who require one-to-one -one observation, whether it be the person whose development is delayed, um, why the care standards have to change is if you are on a sitter, have a sitter, um, you're not able, by virtue of some of the uh, requirements for step-down options in the community, to be admitted. So lest, I've mentioned that before, so lest uh, John George does something unique with the type of care that enables that person to not have a sitter, um, even if they require it, that person will remain in the facility indefinitely. So it's just a lot of... Uh, with regards to that patient uh, where a stroke was identified, I guess my question is, was the stroke identified as, as a function of process, or did that doctor just happen to be there? As a function of process in RPES okay. and the do doctor being the medical uh, evaluation, you know, ac acute onset of uh, behavioral problems in an age group where you would not see that, mm. and when the person was initially seen in an AD, in an ED before coming, and then when he was seen here, and the, the picture also changed a little bit. So, there the physical signs were not there, but it was just behavioral at that mm. time or psychiatric. I guess my larger question was the environment resourced to address these kind of things as part of standard process rather than accident uh, or luck. Well, that's a uh, short answer. Short answer now, uh, but I think it's 
it's related to both as far as the resources and also the processes. So we are, we are, and the short term we are working at the processes and we are also looking at the resources. Answer is we are reevaluating that at the end of the day structurally and in terms of skill mix, there's a need for a, a greater need for a different type of skill mix, including um, uh, physician or internists as well, Absolutely. and nurses that are actually um, ER trained as opposed to psychiatrically ER trained. Mm -hmm. and, and if John George doesn't accept that patient, where would they go? That rarely happens uh, because there is there's no option. I think the way that indirectly happens is when there's a hold. And again, that relates to the PES, what is why I mentioned this. The PES length of stay, the chagrin of many providers, including of our own, um, the increased use of hold because literally in one given moment, although our, the census pictures that we see in the dashboard will save 36 patients, it doesn't count the other 30 that have been there over, over 21 hours. So there are literally 60 people in the ED in one given time. Uh, it just counts the people, the new counts, because it no longer counts after 21 hours. So it's, it's pretty significant in terms of that. But um, nevertheless, uh, and you'll see, uh, we are still tracking the length of time it takes for a physician to physician to make the determination to admit the patient. Our goal was an hour. It's now hovering between half an hour to 45 minutes, so it's <coughs> under that goal. Um, our fingers, toes, and our eyeballs are crossed to decrease the use of uh, census hold altogether as much as we can. That's our goal. Um, it's a challenge in light of all these acuity uh, issues that we're seeing, but that's our goal. So to, sum no, please. to the su summarize some of the things that I've heard over our time to get together, uh, number one, uh, John George takes more 5150s than any other center in, the, in, in, in California. The Alameda County does, and therefore John George. And therefore John George. Yes. John George has probably, for psych emergency services, uh, probably one of, if not the highest, mm. highest rates of yeah. uh, mm. 24 hour visits. We I've have also, about 1,200, and I haven't seen many okay. places which have more than 1,200 visits. I've also heard you're, you've taken on more uh, patients with developmental delay than you have historically. That is true. I've also, at a previous uh, presentation, heard you're taking on more law enforcement-related uh, uh, patients than, than previously. And now I've also heard that you've taken, you have a rising acuity in medically uh, acute patients. Um, in a facility which is actually not an acute care hospital by definition. Are these all correct items that I? Yes. Okay. So, so big question. Uh, if you could redo it, <laughs> what would you do? <laughs> yeah, give, give me the <laughs> rock. Yeah. <laughs> um, in a perfect scenario, sorry. Um, in a perfect scenario, um, and I think we've talked about this in a diff at different meetings, uh, most acute psychiatric facilities are close or within an acute medical facility. Right. Um, in the absence of that, creating some type of true medical unit, med surge-ish, in John George would be one way to help compensate, or at least the staffing. Um, this, this, I don't know that teaching staff to recognize simple uh, signs will ever immediately or even long-term ameliorate the risk. Mm -hmm. Literally, you have to have, uh, in fact, we were doing an event this morning and there was a, uh, it was a code blue, but it was a, it was a, it was a mop. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so everyone was, oh, excited. No, this is a, a drill. Even if there are drills every day, I think, for the, the acuity of patients, the spontaneity of patients, um, it is just in a different type of facility where uh, a large proportion of them don't want to be there. So I, I would say that you would have uh, 
medical facility. You, you would also have, uh, I think, over many years, and we've talked about this, John George has moved, uh, swung in a different direction to having more nurses. Um, and I, I think that they actually need more milieu staff, meaning mental health, uh, which speaks to we have um, mental health workers and who are now mostly functioning as sitters. But in a perfect scenario, they actually would be milieu monitors and providing one-to-one -one support and more therapeutically safe environment as opposed to sitter. But uh, So it would be much more uh, therapeutically enriched as well. It, it would have a medical uh, ability to respond to the patients. So, so you would build an acute care unit within John George's Correct. facility. A, a true PES, a true not PES. a CSU, which is what John. Uh, and and the CSU would would, would be revolve around the acute. Correct. Group? Okay. Correct, and then you would have the inpatient unit. And if I was really having big wands, I would. We want big wands. As long as the county doesn't hear me say this, but I'm yeah. AHS now. Yeah. Um, it needs more. We need more inpatient beds in the in the in the. It is a very is an existential question. But I think at the end of the day, 69 inpatient beds for the entire county for the safety net uh, population uh, will always be a challenge. You'll always have 99.99% occupancy rate. Therefore, you'll always have census holds. That's what I would do. Two floors. Yeah. Do, do you, are, to your knowledge, and maybe this is for Luis as well, are there regulatory impediments to that occurring? No. No. Certainly, it would be expensive, but uh, I would. it would be a reallocation of resources. The so expensive would be creating any more uh, units. That would yeah. be expensive. Um, yeah. The only less expensive would be um, at a facility that's already designated, like uh, John George, which is Highland. But the regulatory changes that could happen, no, it would not. Just reallocation of resources potentially. And what about our physician presence right now from the med surge? Is that happening right now with the yes, acuity? Uh, our leaders are uh, we actually we had a meeting earlier today with our internist group, and Dr. Jamaluddin and Dr. Karnadane, they have been both uh, uh, very been very involved. We are looking closely at how we can uh, have a plan which uh, with which we can really get the maximum from whatever increase that we do. Mm -hmm. They have been very supportive. I'm hoping that we will have some. Dr. Jay, can you comment on these discussions? Uh, yes. So this is uh, 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 trustee Banerjee is a structure issue that we're talking about. So what happens in the PS right now, we can have up to 60 patients with various behavioral issues. And among them, there could be patients with medical problems. and. Uh, you know, having a structure in terms of screening and addressing those medical problems is extremely important. Plus, we have a high-risk zone, like Trustee Hernandez was saying, where we have medical issues that can manifest as behavioral issues. So where we are going to meet together and address those issues and, and direct the patients to the, to the, to the right uh, care. So uh, we, are, we are looking uh, currently at, at the proposal, but we really need to have, as you said here, a structure like how the workflow, what is the standard work, who's going to come to the huddle, how is the patient screened, what is the job of the nurse, what is the job of the doctor, how they communicate with each other. So all of this, we are looking at it at the micro level 
uh, Felicia has been very involved with uh, with Tanuj, and uh, we have the AIM group, and um, also Dr. Baden has been visiting also uh, uh, John George also to see how we can look at the continuum of care in our system between Highland and John George. So we're putting like processes and structures in place to ensure that we have this level of communication and handoffs on on, on those on those patients, and uh, also Janet has been involved at the nursing side uh, to to address all all uh, like basic nursing care and screening tools that need to be to be done. Timeline. Uh, anything about the time timeline? We have we have to uh, we have I mean we have to come up with a proposal by September September third. We have to submit our plan of correct. Oh. So we didn't get to this in closed session, but um, we did receive the final 2567 for the core uh, validation survey. And um, we still have a compliance document oh, on, on the agenda. So that will be due um, on September 3rd. Yeah, but just uh, also to address an uh, extremely important point uh, related to what Karen and Tanuj were saying, uh, they are going to have like mandatory town hall meeting to in engage the staff into into this all this level of change it's like uh, like totally new whole of operating system you know how we're going to look at this you know uh, moving forward dr tribble parting wisdom parting counsel to us as 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 you move to your next journey sure how, how wise it can be but um i think um any system I've ever been a part of, whether it was healthcare I've been, or uh, behavioral health or any other, I think um, it's only as successful as the integration and the mutual esteem. I think one of the challenges, uh, just as you behavioral health in general is is a is a intangible thing. It can be amorphous, and it can also you can't run a blood test to find out if a person is schizophrenic. And I think um, the more recognition of the the specialty and the expertise that it takes can really help guide how we can integrate together, um, as opposed to, i.e., understanding how a heart surgeon works, just accept that a heart surgeon has a, a critical skill needed. And I think that integration and that constant regard for a holistic whole person will be very helpful. And it may be even if it's more, um, um, which has occurred in the throughput meeting, evaluating from the beginning, is there a mental health challenge? because this person is a whole person as opposed to packaging. I think we can be successful, and quite frankly, it'll fit with our population health approach to look upstream as opposed to putting most all of the resources um, when the person is at their most vulnerable. Because at that point, uh, usually, especially for safety net hospital patients, uh, prognosis is a challenge. You know, even re readmission rates can always be a challenge. So if the, the team are recognizing what we have to, to bring to the table in terms of behavioral health, and we structure the system to support the need that we're all seeing, um, as opposed to looking to one facility to manage it, I think uh, we will really make a significant foothold in what we're seeing just all across the nation, whether it's um, events that are occurring across uh, different counties and communities. So. And that, yeah, go ahead. I was just gonna say thank you so much for your leadership. We appreciate you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for your leadership, um, Dr. Dribble. And uh, you know, you came from the county, and now I think a lot of the and you brought that the, um, your insights and perspectives about 
what it was holistically and uh, you can take back some of that and also be able to but because it's the integration as you said just like we are talking now about getting med search into John George but our med search units have to be have to build the capacity to work with folks with behavioral health issues so it's it's across the system we need to be able to manage patients with comorbidities and do multiple diagnoses including uh, behavioral health issues much better so thank you and we hope you um, you know before you leave uh, you'll be able to uh, pass on a lot of the lessons learned and things that you think structurally culturally resource wise um, that John George will need to to succeed we'll miss you Dr. J. Uh, thank you. I, I, again, you know, I want to thank Dr. Tribble. You know, she uh, took a huge lead in uh, in uh, like lots of transformational changes uh, at John George. Uh, just also for uh, like you know, public comment, I'm saying that uh, Highland takes care of a great deal of patients with behavioral issues, and they receive their medical care. You know, at any one point, uh, you know, at Highland, uh, we have we have maybe seven, eight, sometimes four patients who have behavioral issues with chronic problems, and, uh, you know, they, they everybody gets involved. The chairs do multidisciplinary meetings. They do calls on those patients just to see how how to deliver care for them. So, so uh, in other words, uh, our system is taking care of those of those patients, and then um, and uh, we we are delivering care, uh, medical care, complex medical care with patients with complex behavioral issues, uh, you know, at, at, at Highland. Dr. Tribble, appreciation and thanks for your service. Thank you. I have to say, uh, thank you. Okay. Continue clapping. I think I like that too. No, I, I, I want to say on a personal note, I, I, I feel blessed. I have learned a great deal about um, from the other side, and I can honestly say I don't, there's not been a mental health director. I literally I walked across the street who's had the opportunity to work concurrently within a system um, pretty much contemporaneously from previous uh, behavioral health roles. And I think the, the colleagues with whom I've worked uh, the teamwork and the um, true commitment has been awesome. And I, I do feel blessed, and I, I definitely will most certainly take the learning that I've gained and as an opportunity and a perspective that I don't, um, I, I relish. So I really appreciate the time. Thank you, Dr. All the best. Thank you. With that, we will close out item E, and we will go to item F, which is an update on Sapphire. Um, uh, I, uh, we, we've, we've been planning for this. Uh, this is really our last checkpoint uh, for the board to hear uh, about Sapphire. Uh, we are at 36 days to go live as of today. Um, so because of that, of course, there is a QPSC, but it's about you know five or six days before go live. I've asked our CIO, Mark Amy, and our CMIO, Dr. Dave English, uh, to, to present the standard report and field questions. Um, and uh, the mic is yours. Thank you. So Dave just reminded me I have to use the mic, so I'll make sure to do that. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through the um, standard board report that uh, we did at Taft at ASTA that um, we um, not just uh, go into just the detailed uh, or just the standard report, but we really uh, 
be able to talk a little bit more on this. So what I'd like to do, Dave and I will tag team on this with um, kind of Q&A as we go through this, if that's okay. So let's not save it all to the end, if that's okay. We'll Wonderful. just go through on, uh, on the various slides, talk a little bit about where we're at. I'll try to add a little bit more color to the slides than maybe we sometimes do in detail. And then please keep me on time here so that I, I don't run over if we need to speed up at all. Yes, sir. So um, the, um, uh, the slide up here, and I know you can read it in your board materials, but this is basically just the status from Epic. You've seen this over and over. It's actually a very good indicator of where, we are, where we're at and an, a, a, an indicator that we follow pretty closely internally with what we're doing. We obviously do some of our own reporting as well. Uh, and where we see dis discrepancies, we look between the two. We're satisfactory this uh, month. Um, we have a couple of areas that we're um, watching very closely, and I'll actually get to those in a later slide as far, and I think that's a slide we'll spend a, a, you know, more of our time on. But uh, it gives you a good, a good understanding of where we're at on the overall project. So I'm actually gonna flip on this slide pretty quick if that's okay, and we can uh, obviously come back if we need to. Timeline, I'm also not gonna spend a lot of time on that particular slide, but just where we're at, we're in the training and go live area, and I'm gonna spend a little time talking about training um, I actually welcome the uh, other doctors in the room uh, impressions uh, of uh, how the training's been going uh, for them. I'm uh, glad to hear that uh, uh, some of you have uh, um, been through uh, training recently. That's great. I know I've also got uh, at least one uh, STS in the corner over with uh, Dr. Gassan, um, who's been doing a lot of training for us. So there's actually several, actually, as I'm sitting here, Felicia's smiling at me as well. So we've got, we got a bunch of them. So thank you. Thank you all. Um, so. Um, Continuing to flip here, so major accomplishments are things that we've gotten done this last month. Um, we got our testing wrapped up. This is a significant effort when you stop and think about what we're doing because not only do we really do two types of testing. One of them is unit testing, so it's all the individual items, um, and we test each of those to make sure that they work correctly. The second thing we do is we actually do workflow testing, which is where we run through specific workflows, and some of those workflows take us well over a month to complete. And so um, we, uh, we got off to a little bit of a bumpy start. I will share with you a couple months ago when we started testing, um, just with the rigor of it and people being uh, basically locked in a room for very long hours. We had a testing team of about 30 people that was in and out of a room, but mainly in a room. And uh, we spent hours and hours uh, there going through testing scenarios. And it's everything from you know, when a patient shows up, admitting that patient as they move through your ED or other areas like that and testing each uh, step all the way through to did the, uh, did the bills drop on the back end uh, with what you're doing. And if you got stuck along there, then having to stop, figure out do I have to retest for all the way from the beginning, where do I move through on that? So it's a very comprehensive uh, set of tests that we go through. Uh, you know, the test found problems. Um, actually less problems than we were anticipating, which is great uh, for the quality of our build, but uh, there's uh, you know, any time you find problems, it's good to find them out of production, but uh, it also means more work as, as you go through and correct those, but uh, really went well with that, with that work. Our uh, training effort is uh, going well as well. We had to make a number of adjustments to training classes uh, as we were going through, but uh, we actually were in our go-live readiness assessment, our 30-day one yesterday, and I actually will we'll talk a little bit about that. But uh, as we're going through that, we had a number of training questions come up to adjustments we've made to course schedules, um, making sure that we have the uh, right uh, credential tra trainers in place, making sure that we have the right classrooms, and uh, yeah, there's confusion when people don't read their emails about which classroom they show up to. There's been the occasional classroom where the um, light bulbs burned out in the projector, so we have all the, all the normal stuff that you'd expect uh, happening when you're running um, thousands of people through training. But it's been going well. 
I will say one of the things that was unique, and I, we were actually talking a little bit after uh, the last board meeting, is we do have a couple of areas that are coming off of paper um, onto computers. Now, in some of those areas, the people have been like, oh, thank God, we're coming off of uh, paper onto computers. We've been waiting for this for a long time. And you know, I use it at you know, Sutter or Kaiser or wherever else it is. We have had a handful of employees, and this is something I haven't done since the 90s, um, where we've actually been doing very, very detailed computer training. How do you use a mouse? How do you do a left click? How do you do a right click? How do you do a double click? Uh, those sorts of courses. I've actually been popping in because the majority of those courses have been in our building, and so I stick my head in. Uh, we've had a great trainer that has been doing that. He, he actually makes homemade cookies, so uh, we've been popping in that in there, and he's actually kept a lot of enthusiasm. And as I've been talking with the students in there, a little bit of frustration as they're looking at the uh, uh, learning the computer, um, but a lot of enthusiasm for some of them. And so that's, that's actually been great, but it brought me back to actually some of my early career with what we've been doing there. Uh, Long-term care workflows, um, we actually got Richard, I don't think he's in here today, but we actually got Richard. trauma, ETA, five minutes. Quarantine to the ER. Level one trauma, ETA, five minutes. We actually got a, a smile on Richard's face yesterday at uh, the live readiness assessment. And the reason that uh, long-term care has been um, such a, um, a, a focus for us is it's a very new module for Epic. So Epic has some of their modules that are extremely well-developed. Uh, this is one of their newer modules. We have had a real commitment from Richard, from Luis, from others um, to making sure that we go live with the long-term care module because we really want that integrated care, which comes back again you know, a lot to what this uh, this committee does, which is run quality. And you know, so you think about it when you have patients that are flowing out of your long-term care area into the hospital, back into the long-term care area, how do you want to see their medical record? And having one medical record is huge uh, in those areas. So we, we've had great progress. Uh, we're in the process of developing cutover plans, um, and these are extremely detailed, thousands of tasks that we have to do in a very short period of time in order to go off of the old systems, go into our downtime processes, get the get uh, uh, items such as the latest labs and the latest, the latest medications into the new system and then back, back up on the new system. So we're deep in the, in the planning on that uh, right now with the cutover processes. And then, of course, the, uh, the uh, support, and I'll talk about this on, uh, on a little bit more on a later slide, but the uh, command center, which we're going to be running for a month. And when you think about it, we're going to have um, up to 200 people at a time in the command center alone. So just the physical logistics of this, uh, Belgeet has been uh, instrumental in helping us refit uh, the uh, atrium space. Uh, they're getting uh, soundproofing uh, down, getting air conditioning into that space, a number of things. Just the amount of power. Uh, we had to put in a new uh, power operator unit uh, in there in order to handle all the computers that we're going to be putting into that space. So just a lot of logistics, logistics. let alone all of the they're figuring out uh, parking or bus uh, shuttles for the people we have coming in, the, the elbow support, making sure that we have enough people, not only um, obviously at Highland, which will be the primary command center, but at each of the other hospitals and then all of our clinics as well. There's significant logistics that goes into that. Uh, technical dress rehearsal. We're actually closer than 80% these slides that change almost daily for us. Um, we're at about 95%. We think Mark, right can you now. remind everyone what a tech... Uh, oh, I'm sorry, yes, thank you, absolutely. So technical dress rehearsal is where we go around to every computer and we make sure that it's going to work. Most importantly, that it's going to print where it's supposed to print is the big thing. 
uh, that we uh, <laughs> uh, that we have uh, going on there. So uh, you should have if you you're referring are, to the blue dots. If, yes, your has, if your computer has a blue dot on it, it's Epic ready, and I have an orange dot. So we, we got to come back because your uh, computer is a troublemaker. Yes, so, it is. So. It, it belongs to its master. Yes. So if you have if you have a blue dot, you're good to go. If you have an orange dot, you're not. If you have no dot, we're actually going to be locking those computers down over the next um, uh, couple of weeks because um, we are having a hard time finding a couple hundred of our computers in our organization. We very much need an asset management system. That'll be a, some, uh, something future thing for us to uh, visit uh, next year or the year after because we have a number of priorities like that. But we've had a team that has been working very long hours for the last six, eight weeks now, weekends, 12-hour days, going through checking every computer. Chasing down doctors, um, Janet told me it was the doctors, and it was, uh, that are moving um, the cows between floors and uh, getting the cows back to the right floor so they're printing at the right location, that sort of thing. So we've had that going on as well. Really? Wow. Between Carl and ICU. Areas of focus for us. So this is a slide, actually, when I first uh, um, worked with uh, Katya and Dave, uh, the slide was completely different because this changes almost daily as well with where we're focused at any particular moment. But I'll give you a highlight kind of of where our life is, uh, is right now. Uh, so security access is a huge area of focus for us. And, uh, and there's two things that you really, when you think about security and are worried about it, as I am, one of them is bad people coming in from the outside your organization doing bad things. I'm actually with Epic. Now, we have a lot of other security issues, and I'm sure at some point we'll be back talking with you about security overall. But um, with Epic, I'm not particularly concerned about that because Epic provides a very uh, robust security model, and we're hosting with them. So they do, uh, they do a lot of that work for us. Uh, the other thing, though, is access control. And that's really meaning the right doctor has the right privileges to do the right um, services. The right nurse has the right privileges to do the right services. And what you want to be doing in those instances is giving the, uh, a clinician every, or, or, or a revenue cycle person, every access that they need to do their job, but no additional uh, access because you have risk in there. And for the most part, we're in pretty good shape. So our employees come through Lawson, and that's great, and it's a very accurate system for us. We're working on that um, and uh, tying together the interfaces there. Uh, our uh, physicians come through the med staff uh, process. But what we're finding is there is a handful, and it's not a insignificant, it's about 1,000 people that we're dealing with of travelers, of, um, of um, temporary staff, consultants, contractors, um, some students, um, some uh, staff that comes in from some of our community hospitals, other things like that stuff that doesn't really fit into the two neat buckets that we have. And we have a lack of ownership around those areas. So we're working through that right now. It's, uh, it's something I know we're going to get resolved. Actually, uh, Gassan's been very involved in this with us. Our HR team has been as well. So I know we're going to work through this. Uh, Satira, hi, I see sitting back there. She's been very involved in this. We're going to work through it, but it is something we've got to get resolved at this point. We have about a week that we need to work through it. Yeah. And for a thousand people. So, yeah, it's really de determining the source of truth. Once you have it for this 500 people or these 300 people, then you know how to handle that, that particular group. So. Uh, the other um, uh, thing that um, we're um, uh, working on is um, uh, the um, Epic Build Freeze. I just noticed I had a typo on my slide, so sorry about that. Um, the other thing that I am, um, uh, it's a little distracting. So the other thing that we have uh, going on is the Epic Build Freeze. And our Build Freeze um, was a little later out than I um, wanted to see, and so we've actually moved that back by about two weeks, so we're freezing Labor Day weekend. 
um, where we will have no additional changes going into the system. Now what this means, we're actually not doing a whole bunch of new programming, but what we are doing is additional changes to the system uh, where, you know, well, we found that we didn't build this quite correct, so we want to do this, we want to add that, or gee, we didn't think about this. So there's a lot of little configuration stuff that's still going on. We really got to let the system settle, uh, in part because every time we make a change, we have to go back and revise all of our training materials if it has an impact to how the, how the workflows actually work. So we've got to get that stabilized. And uh, that's something that certainly something we're focused on. The biggest reason this is uh, an area of focus is Dave and I are both becoming experts at saying no, as people have brilliant ideas at the last moment on how they'd like to see the system work. Uh, the ship has sailed at this point, and so we're, we're unfortunately both in the uh, in the no category right now on that stuff. We're uh, we're in the no, but later, uh, if it's important in January, we'll revisit uh, we'll revisit it. And, and very specifically, I'll actually touch on this at this point. Timeline-wise, we're going to go live September 28. We're going to have a command center for approximately a month uh, there. We'd love to close it a little earlier, to go a little later uh, than that. After that, we're going to have two months of stabilization where we're still working on nothing but basically broken stuff, and that's pretty typical. Um, assuming that we hit the timeline, we think we will. Roughly in January, we'll do a pivot where, we're, well, where we will start to work on optimization of the system. And so that's where we start to take requests of either things that we intentionally deferred or more likely things that come up and people are like, you know, hey, this would be really nice if we had this or we think we could shorten this workflow or, gee, we forgot this particular item, we'd like to add it in and we'll, we'll do that. And a very focused um, six months of optimization will occur now. Um, and I love Gassan's quote that um, uh, using an EMR is like, uh, it's not like riding a bicycle, right? It's like using a musical instrument, which I'm very unmusical, but you have to practice on it constantly. So optimization of the system really never stops. We'll be optimizing Epic 10 years from now uh, with what we do. But you, obviously, there's some there's some gross um, uh, um, uh, optimization that you do, and then there's some uh, some uh, micro optimization that you do uh, in the future. Uh, go live staffing. We're working on that, and that's actually the questions uh, that were and what the, the way Janet answered it was perfect. Thank you, Janet, on the on the staffing. This is a comp complex. I'd love to say it's as, as easy as just saying, oh, there's a ratio of. X number of staff and you have a super user in there. That's not how it works. And so in general, very loosely, we use kind of a six to one ratio on our, on our staffing to our super users. So for every roughly six users we have, we have one super user in the mix. The reality is that changes greatly. If you're in the ICU, um, what you're doing on your night shifts, we have fewer staff, other things like that uh, with it. We think we're really hitting the, the appropriate balance between cost savings and not you know, spending money that we shouldn't be versus making sure that we have the right staff uh, in, in the particular areas to support our doctors. The one thing I want to mention, and our nurses, of course, the one thing I do want to mention is, of course, this is going to take, it's going to be slower, it's going to take longer when you first, uh, when you first start using the system. All the training in the world, you know, think about it uh, using the, uh, the music analogy, you've uh, practiced music um, for uh, piano for many years, but you get a new piece, it still takes you a while to run through that piece, right? I mean, you, you have to get, and then pretty soon you're playing it like uh, Beethoven, but uh, it takes you a while to, to do that. So we, even with the training, um, even with people that have had experience in other EMRs, of course, we're gonna be slower as we first start to use the system here. And we just gotta be prepared for that. Um, the general um, rule of thumb that Epic uh, uses on this is for our clinicians, uh, uh, specifically our doctors is the ones that we're talking about usually about two weeks of bumpiness. Now, that can be extended if you're a doctor that only sees patients one day a week. 
obviously it takes a lot longer um, to get that proficient with the system. If you're a doctor that's uh, going through mass set of patients or you have a very similar workflow on your patients, you can be up to speed much quicker than that. But generally two weeks is about what it takes to adopt to a new system, which actually from what I understand it from having done some uh, study on this is about how long it takes to really ingrain new memories uh, into, uh, into the human brain in general. So it, it's not consistent there. Uh, revenue cycle. Um, we're actually working on a number of things around revenue cycle. Revenue cycle is always a challenging area to implement within Epic. Um, we've talked at the, at the primary board meeting about that as well, but yeah, there's some projections around that. This is an area we will actually have daily um, dashboards that we'll be watching on several areas, including revenue cycle, and we'll actually be doing a daily huddle on revenue cycle to make sure uh, Epic is a very work queue driven system, and so what you don't want to do is you don't want to ignore a particular queue for a while and have that sneak up on you. So we will be watching those on a very regular basis. We actually have a super cool um, dashboard that uh, we're, uh, at least I think it's super cool, mm -hmm. uh, that we're putting out to all of the chairs that will actually allow them to see where they have um, various areas that they're not doing their, uh, that they're not closing out encounters and they're not uh, doing their appropriate charge capture within their areas where they can drill down all the way down to the individual provider level. And so this gives us a new level of visibility in the organization. For those who aren't present at last night's board meeting, uh, um, the data suggests about a 2% increase in, in revenue cycle charge. Uh, capture which will over the first six months which will equate to around two and a half two point four million dollars so that's that's definitely some upside mm -hmm. so jumping uh, jumping here to uh, first of all questions on uh, anything I talked about there mark we're, we're starting to come towards time uh, I guess my question would be if you wouldn't mind would you walk us through the choreography of Saturday September 28th at midnight through the first 72 hours because the weekend is smart to launch on the weekend but come Monday or, or Dr. English come Monday we open up some clinics so if you'll just talk us through the choreography of actually the first 72 hours then the first week and then okay actually it begins right before that in long-term care two weeks before they start putting the long-term residents into EPIC so that nursing staff and others can begin to transfer their orders and information into EPIC, and they keep them in parallel. As we get closer to the weekend, beginning the 26th and 27th, we begin to register in all the people who are in acute care beds. On the day of the 27th, a large team of people is busy backloading the information from the chart in several ways. We have pharmacists doing the meds, and mostly nurses doing the non-med orders, and then revisiting the charts as the evening progresses. As we get down to midnight, although we talk about going dark or going down with our existing systems, what we're actually trying to do is put them into a mode where you cannot create new orders or new events, but you can still refer to all the existing information. There's no reason to take that away from the providers. For the next several hours, all of our interfaces will be switched over to EPIC, various things will be checked out technically, and yet the registration staff will still be in EPIC, making sure that the ED patients are in there, that they're in the right place. Staff in the ED and the birthing center will begin to backload information for patients they expect to still be there at the moment of technical go of official go-live. Somewhere around 4 a.m., a group of senior leaders will make a go-no-go -no -go decision based on how everything is going, and sometime shortly thereafter, in the early morning hours of the 28th, we will release the staff to get in there, and then nursing staff in particular. This is the elbow support? No, our staff. Oh, our staff. Okay. The elbow support will be pre-positioned to be at the elbow and help them. Got it. But then the nursing staff will go through a checklist 
to record information of what happened during the dark period so that it's available in Epic. And by then, we're running. Who gets to push the button? <laughs> well, Mark does. <laughs> <laughs> and then let, let's talk about Monday when, 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 when uh, we, we both uh, engage ambulatory as well as the inpatient. Well, just to be clear, Mark's not allowed to touch any buttons. He's already been told. So, uh, um, the, uh, so actually what this is, uh, and one that you perfect, by the way, Dave, um, one thing, we'll actually start scheduling patients into the new system roughly two weeks uh, beforehand yeah. as well. So there's multiple, like, if you want to call mini go-lives yeah. that actually happened before the big one. Um, one other interesting thing, there, there's actually some competing priorities, which is why uh, they said around 4 o'clock. I've a actually had go-lives in the past that have slipped a little bit because we had uh, challenges, you know, with an interface or with getting, um, uh, you know, the last orders in or whatever it was like that. Um, we really want to try to support as close to four as possible. Anywhere between four and about six um, is is fine. We have some contingencies if we were to slide past that. Lab orders is uh, and doing the lab holes is really a big thing for us uh, that we want to make sure that we're support, uh, supporting Dr. Ng with what uh, with what she and, and the lab uh, are doing in the, in the house. Um, to um, to answer your question specifically about uh, so, Epic likens this, and certainly my experience has been the same. That there's basically three to four go-lives, depending on how you want to look at it. So one of them is the official go-live, Saturday night um, into Sunday morning. You go, there's a lot of um, uh, enthusiasm around that. We got, uh, we got people there. The next big one is, you could say Sunday, Sunday because oftentimes you have a change of staff, but Sunday's maybe a mini go-live for you. Monday's another big go-live, because you oftentimes you have your people that went on the weekend, they're gone now, so you have a new set, uh, set of people on Monday. Uh, and uh, you got to support those uh, those folks, and we'll obviously have. There's nothing technically that changes during that, but we need to make sure that we have the at the other support um, with what uh, with what we have there. And just and I actually have a slide I didn't include it in this, but uh, when you think about this, we have at the other support. Um, that's actually on the floor. We go from there to what we're calling zone um, commanders or zone captains. Um, those are people that, that, that basically coordinate our at the elbow support. They're an escalation point. That then goes from there into our command center. We flow things through our help desk, actually, to um, capture all the tickets into our command center, and then we have an escalation process in there as well. And we use that same model every day of the week. We, st uh, we staff heavier, obviously, towards the beginning of this. And Mondays are always a heavy day, as anybody that uh, works clinically with us knows. So we make sure that we have the appropriate staffing uh, in those areas. So that Monday is another go-live for us. And then the last go-live that they, they always refer to is the next Monday, a week later, because you often have, to big, uh, have a big turnover of staff. So again, nothing technically changes during this time. But anytime you get a new, great big bolus of fresh users, you have kind of a mini go-live that takes place for you. And we need to make sure that we have the appropriate at the elbow support each on each of those. Thank you for that report. I, pretty comprehensive. Uh, you guys have been choreographing D-Day. So I uh, appreciate it. Dr. English. Mark uh, was remiss in calling out STSs, and he failed to note how helpful Dr. Baden and yourself, Trustee Bouquet, have been as trainers. He's been taking it upon himself, by the way, to do one-on-one -on -one lessons with all the GI staff. So it's an amazing amount of dedication. It's a lot of pain. Can I, <laughs> Thank you. Can I ask a, a, of course. Uh, just a clarifying question? Um, what percent of the data? What percent of the data on our existing patients? has already been transferred in. I heard you say something about it happening, but I'm just trying to understand. There are a great many layers to that question. Okay. Uh, the demographics and registration information of people going as far back as we have records for. Uh -huh. uh, transcribed, dictated, typed documents from Sorian 
going as far back as Sorian went, which is, I think is about 2012. Lab results for five years for most areas. Uh, pathology reports for 10 years. Um, this could go on. It is actually a presentation unto itself that's been given to CORE a few times. Mm -hmm. There are folks in ambulatory who will spend days transcribing problem lists, meds, and allergies for all the people who have upcoming appointments. So, so it, it's, a a work in it, it's a work in progress. It's yes. not something. Yeah, okay. Got it. My simple layman's term, so Dave gives the appropriate medical answer. My layman's term answer is generally about three years because that's about the shortest amount of data that we're pulling from legacy systems into Epic, which we work very closely with the medical staff on figuring out what was relevant. But there's many areas where we go back longer. The other thing I will actually prime you for is we are going to have requests going through the finance committee and then to the main board around a, an archiving system that we're working uh, towards. And we are hoping to get archived as quickly after go live as possible. Most of our systems, we have a very short uh, return on investment on that because we can, uh, we can uh, cancel contracts. A couple of them we have longer contracts on. We're working, working through those. But over, we have to keep the data for about 10 years, and I'll just prime you that it's about a $12 million return on investment uh, over a 10-year period. So it's obviously another part of our strategy, and it's pretty slick because you can actually, when you're in Epic, click on that system, and it'll pull up all of that legacy archive data uh, for you to take a look at. Trustees, any further questions? Just the scale of it. It's it's really hard to. Might as well. <laughs> so, both of you, thank you for your service. I know I know you've given innumerable hours on this, and uh, as as I think many of us, this is one of the most important strategic moves this organization's ever made. Honestly, it's a team effort, though. Everybody around the table has been involved in this, so thank you all. Cheers. All right. Um, Wish us all luck. As a, as a side note, uh, our, our counterpart at San Francisco General went live about two weeks ago. I, I happen to be close with their chief medical officer, and he is pretty happy about their launch. He's pretty happy about their launch so far. Uh, so I'll say there, there's some opportunity uh, in the interim uh, if, 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 if there needed to be any reach out to our counterparts on lessons learned from our San Francisco general colleagues. We've actually been staying close with them. I, I appreciate the, uh, the uh, uh, recommendation. Uh, actually, Katya, who's our program director, actually was over there the, de the night of their cutover, and we've been in touch with them uh, uh, closely. We actually looked at sharing resources with them. Um, uh, coincidentally, our, our, our go lights are so close together, they're now in the stabilization, and we're in the last minute getting everything done, so we just, between the two organizations, didn't feel that there was a logical uh, resource sharing. We are already, though, talking about long-term, how we might be able to do certain things together from an initiative standpoint to help support each other and reduce the costs on certain of the build we want to do in the future. I don't know the official statistic, but when Microsoft cut over from, like, Windows 9 to Windows 10 or something, or the big change, global productivity dropped like 25%. So everybody was trying to figure out how to use yeah. the, new, the new system. I think we have to expect that there will be a lot of folks just trying to figure out stuff for the first time. And we, you know, that's just part of the nature of this beast. Yeah. Yeah. We just have to be ready for it. And it's happened everywhere. So why, <laughs> yeah, why exactly. should we not? Why would we, why would we um, Thank you again, both of you, for that report. Last pit stop. With that, we'll close item F and we'll go to item G, the Patient Safety and Regulatory Affairs Report. I'll make note that there was discussion in a closed session amongst many of these elements, but I'll, uh, I'll ask our newly anointed Chief Quality Officer, Dr. Tanvir Hussein, to make some uh, comments uh, with regard to report and uh, the report that's included. Okay. Tanvir, you think five minutes is good enough? 
Uh, yeah, I hope, yes. Okay. Okay. Um, so, uh, some key updates on the patient safety regulatory affairs side. So, one, uh, previously we had talked about, spoken about the number of anonymous reports that went to the Joint Commission as an update to the board. There were approximately 10 over the span of three months, um, and five of them have already been uh, cleared by the Joint Commission as being. Uh, either we uh, uh, were able to invalidate the complaint or provide enough supporting data to, to ensure that that complaint was not substantiated. Four are pending and there's one currently in process. So I think that uh, demonstrates that we, uh, upon hearing internally of these significant events, we address them in a thorough fashion to actually ensure there's validity and if there is validity, we have the processes in place to address them. So I'm pleased that the Joint Commission agrees with, with that. Um, um, in terms of, we have two CMS surveys that we're currently um, in the process of. So one is at Almeida Hospital. So the survey, uh, an update on the survey at Almeida Hospital. So we have, we submitted the plan of correction on July 23rd um, and it was, in, we submitted in advance, it was due August 5th. We're waiting for final approval, we suspect, um, based on some of our uh, communications that our robust plan of correction was something like 200 pages will be accepted soon. Um, I just received the um, uh, internal monitoring data yesterday and the quality team has reviewed it. Um, all the benchmarks are over 90%. The only area that we're continue to, continuing, uh, the Alameda Hospital team is continuing to push is the uptake of the education modules around um, restraints, consents, and we expect that there would be a, you know, it went from 30 up to like 80%. So we anticipate that it will hit the benchmark of 90% very soon. Um, the official termination date that's listed in the letter. Um, I'm saying, can you remind everyone what that means, termination date? Yes. So um, the termination or decertification date is a date at which um, CMS tentatively proposes that if we are not back in compliance with the conditions of participation, they would first um, stop funding uh, care for Medicaid, uh, Medicare patients, and usually Medicaid soon thereafter follows. Um, we usually have two attempts um, prior to that happening. Um, so this would be our first attempt. And um, again, for Almeda Hospital, that's October 24. So that's about two months away, and we anticipate that the plan of correction there uh, will be accepted very soon. So that's Almeda Hospital. Now going to the core, um, so the core uh, complaint validation survey, this stems back to March 26th. Um, we had a, um, uh, a resurvey done on July 8th through the 12th, and we have just on Tuesday evening um, received the final, uh, the 2567 from CMS. So the, uh, um, so that plan of correction uh, for those findings, which we had discussed in closed session at, at the last board, and because these findings are not public, um, we won't go into detail here. Um, but to uh, assure you that there were not significant changes in those findings other than what we had discussed at the last closed session. We have until September 3rd to submit our plan of correction. And um, the termination deadline was extended. It was previously July 30th. Right. Now it has been extended to November 13th, 2019. Um, and um, um, when we when we surpassed um, the July 30th date, uh, we lost our deem status, and I think this was already communicated out previously, which basically means that CMS gives accrediting organizations like the TJC authority to deem organizations on their behalf 
during the triannual surveys in compliance with the conditions of participation. When there is a complaint lodged, the state agency, CDPH, comes to survey. And then if they find, during, if the state agency finds that we continue to not be in compliance with the conditions of participation, the deemed status with the TJC gives us gets removed. And now we are under the auspices of the state agency, CDPH, to uh, alert CMS that we are back in compliance. So, the sh so on September 3rd, we need to produce a plan of correction that um, CDPH will accept and then come back for uh, to validate that we are doing those things. Um, so, as um, as you heard uh, from Dr. Tribble and Dr. Siddhartha, there's transformative work that's occurring at John George, um, not only at John George, but the integration of John George with the system. Um, and alongside that, um, we recognize that, the f that there were uh, findings that the surveyors found. And to ensure that we rapidly make the necessary transformations needed to help the surveyors appreciate the urgency with which we are making these changes. Um, the executive leadership, leadership team um, and, and Luis uh, earlier this week spoke with the entire John George staff that um, uh, we will, uh, there will be additional support um, to help with this transformation. And so now uh, Dr. Tornabene, Janet and I um, are uh, living and breathing at John George to um, basically discover a lot of these operational processes that really need to be solidified. Um, and tomorrow and on Monday, we will be having um, a rapid process improvement events to engage the frontline staff to see if they have clarity around what those processes are. Because in a just culture framework, to hold people, we don't blame, we learn, we implement systems, and then we hold people accountable. Mm -hmm. And if there, there has to be clarity about the process to then ensure accountability. And, um, and it has been a, a meaty dialogue daily. Um, and, and we are hammering out those details. So we need to work urgently. We have work to do. Next week's and your we last full week before September yes. 3rd, right? And, and we, will, we will muster together as a system to make it happen. Because the safety and quality and security of our patients is something to which we do everything necessary to achieve. Um, thank you. Trustees, big, comments, questions? Yeah. Big, very big task. Mm -hmm. My gosh, you don't need us to. Tinder, talk us through the implications of the site licensure merging with San Leandro and now uh, becoming part of the core. The implications for termination now extends to San Leandro Hospital, correct? Um, I'm going to defer to our regulatory affairs expert because regarding the timing of the licensing merging and how this plays out until we have the certification done with the licensor. So, uh, Nilda, would you? Just scenario planning, uh, yes. which I think is The well. implication, you know, again, um, although most of the findings were discovered at John George, that is the location where it happened, but we as a system respond. We, we sit all under the same site. Correct. Correct. That's Correct. right. Hi. Hello. Uh, good afternoon. So um, the potential. Oh, I'm Nelda Perez. This is Director for Regulatory Affairs. Thank Hello. you, Nelda. Thank you. Um, so 
So um, the merger of adding um, San Leandro Hospital onto the core license is slated to be completed by early October. In fact, it may happen sooner, but I always like to give a conservative date. Because this current CMS survey happened prior to that, there will be no implication to San Leandro Hospital as part of this survey process. They're not included. The survey is specific Wonderful. to the facility as it was at the time of that survey. Wonderful. So that's it. That's the short and sweet. Thank you. You're welcome. That is short and sweet. Thank you. You're welcome. That's good content. I, I do have a question. Uh, Dr. Hussein, do you feel resourced for this September 3rd deadline? I, I do you feel that you are ready to do what you need to do? I would really have to defer, you know, I would really have to defer that question to the operational leaders because the work, um, we are going to come up with a plan of correction. Okay. The, what, what the surveyors will look for is that it has truly been implemented okay. and that the reliability rate, that means decreasing the number of people who slip through the clacks through our processes, mm -hmm. is minimized. Okay. So, you know, I would really have to defer, and, and, and I, I would also like to engage uh, uh, Dr. Tornabene and, and Janet, um, uh, as they have also been spending a lot of time there to help answer that question. Um, there's been a lot of discovery that's occurred, and so one of the reasons for engaging the frontline staff is um, for them to feel value and purpose and meaning in these innovative, in these, these improvements, so that when surveyors come, it's not a task, but it feels that we, that they have a feeling that they are delivering tremendous care to a difficult population and that they feel pride in the improvements they have made. That's what we have to inspire because that is what's going to lead to adherence. We'll bring out some cookies during that visit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Trustees, any further questions? Anything else um, from either of you? No, I think uh, the last couple of days, sorry, mm -hmm. have been eye-opening for us, but I, I think the key is exactly as Tanvir said, is to bring it down to the frontline staff. I mean, we can sit in a room and make processes and map everything, and um, if that work is new to them and it's it's news to even what the findings were to them, we're never going to move the dial. And so I think that's key in the town halls. Uh, the way they're structured is really that uh, the, the PowerPoint has been put together by um, Tanvir essentially and his team. Um, he'll tee it up with here's the findings and then really hand it off to the John George team that, that it's their staff. Trauma to the ER, level 2, ETA, 8 minutes. Trauma to the ER, level 2, ETA, 8 minutes. So they have that relationship with the staff. It doesn't work for us to come in and say, hey, we have all the answers and this is how it's going to work. So um, that's the goal. There's three sessions Friday and then three sessions Monday so that we can reach all of the staff. Um, and then and then we'll go from there. But you know, I think it's it's concerning in that the window is so tight it's right tight, now, so and tight. really they tight. could submit the plan and they could come back the next day and and survey on the plan. And so, how do we make sure everything's hardwired? And let me just ask on the optics for this: Is there any reason to have a board of trustee member around to just support this process? Do you feel that that they would be pleased to know that we're watching this with you and helping out in some way. 
I, I'm just asking. Yeah, that. I mean, that it probably wouldn't hurt. I agree. <laughs> and, you know, the town hall times are set. Louise. I mean, if you don't think that that's necessary, that's fine. I just, I'm just worried about, you know, such an important decision is about to be made. Tell us what to do. And you don't have to tell us now, but call us or email us or say something to us. Because if that's the case, um, I, we I will think, make ourselves available. Yeah, I think we need to have full court press. This is a really big deal. Mm -hmm. So, we'll thank, you. thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Tanvir, uh, thank you for that report. Thank you. Um, uh, uh, something else to negotiate, which we, which, which we will. Uh, with that, we'll close item G. Item H is the True North Metric Dashboard Review. Uh, this is included in your packet. It is a standard item. I will note that uh, we're kind of phasing out the data from the prior dashboard. Mm -hmm. And we're, we'll be moving into the new dashboard probably within the next month or so as quality accumulates the data to populate the new dashboard items with that. Mm -hmm. Any comment necessarily on the True North? Great report, as always. As always. Um, a lot of red, um, but um, uh, we, we, again, we continue to go on. With that, we'll close item H. We'll move to item I, the tracking calendar. Uh, the tracking calendar is included there for you to review. Uh, uh, there's been no special request for any ad hoc reports, save one, which we tabled from the spring. We'll ask Dr. J to give us a, a, a discussion in follow-up to the patient affairs landscape that we had back in early spring. Is there a role for a patient voice on this committee? Was one of the which was one of the big questions. Um, so understanding how we interact with our patients, not clinically. But, but from that uh, is sort of the bent of that. We'll do that sometime in November. Otherwise, we have standard work for our presentations, which are included in the, in the document. With that, I'll close item I. Item J, legal counsel report. Yeah, the uh, committee met in closed session approved the prepared report from the two medical staffs took no interaction. Thank you. With that, we'll close item J. And we are at one minute plus time. Thank you. That will close QPSC.